in hot pursuit, a Supreme Court case about police officers and their ability to enter homes while in the active process of an arrest. What are they allowed to do and what evidence can they gather? Professor David Gray from the University of Maryland, Francis King Carey School of Law, stops by to give us the latest. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and this is Legal Talk Today. All right. Welcome back, listeners. Hope you're having a great day out there. I'm excited for today's show. We have a wonderful guest. But before we get to it, we need to thank our sponsor for their generous support, Noda. Noda is powered by MT Bank because you went to law school to be a lawyer, not an accountant. Take advantage of Noda, a no-cost IOLTA management tool that helps solo and small law firms track client funds down to the penny. That's right down to the penny. Visit trustnota.com forward slash legal to learn more. That's Nota spelled N-O-T-A. Terms and conditions may apply. All right. Let's say hello to our guest. Welcome to the show, Professor Gray. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for being here. And so, Professor, you're the Jacob A. France Professor of Law at University of Maryland, Francis King Carey School of Law. You know, you teach courses to your students. And so just by way of the bona fides, what kind of classes do you teach at the law school? I teach criminal procedure and criminal law and evidence and all that whole package of classes related to the criminal practice. So basically, you're the perfect guest for today's show. So we're going to be talking about the uh, Lang versus California case. Now, of course, this took place in Sonoma, California, and it involves this notion of the hot pursuit. And so why don't we start at the very beginning, like you do in your law school classes there, Professor? We always start with the facts of a case. And so tell us about the people in this case and what happened. Uh, So I'll back up one step if you don't mind. This is one of uh, two cases that are on the court's docket this term that deal with the application of exceptions to the warrant requirement to searches of homes. The other one is Coniglia, which was argued just a few days ago. So it's going to be really interesting to see how this court with a number of new members uh, deals with searches that are outside the scope of the warrant requirement or purport to be um, that, but uh, enter into the home. And so in this case, a gentleman named Arthur Lang was drunk driving. There's no dispute about that. He had a blood alcohol level of 0.245, which is certainly drunk driving. And he attracted the attention of a highway patrolman, not because he was swerving, but because he was playing loud music and seemed to be honking his horn for no purpose. And so the officer pulled in behind him and tailed him for a little bit, trying to sort of catch up with him, finally entered a neighborhood behind him. And at this point, there's a little bit of a dispute of what happened. But the facts, as they seem to have been accepted by the Supreme Court, are that Officer Weikert turned on his lights, but not his siren, and followed Mr. Lang into his driveway as Mr. Lang was pulling up into his garage. And at that point, Officer Weikert exited his car and and started to approach Mr. Lang, who was in the process of closing his garage door. Officer Weikert put his foot out and stopped the garage door from closing and then entered into the garage. And once he was in the garage and engaging with Mr. Lang, smelled alcohol on his breath and at that point arrested him for driving under the influence. And so the question for the court was, was that entry into his home, that entry into his garage without a warrant, was that reasonable under the Fourth Amendment? As I understand it, this case did not go through the California Supreme Court. It ended up at the Supreme Court or the U.S. Supreme Court. So, you know, walk us through that process. Why would, why did it bypass the Supreme Court? And then, you know, tell us where we are today. Now, I understand they heard oral arguments, but as far as I know, they have not made a decision. Is that correct? 
That's correct. They had oral arguments were in February, and uh, this was a, a pretty hot bench on the oral argument, about two hours of oral argument, part, in part because there were four different advocates involved. But no, this, the court hasn't issued its opinion. And as to the procedural posture, there are two pathways, well, three pathways to get to the Supreme Court. One is the court's original jurisdiction, including, for example, disputes between states. Another is through the pathway of appeals through the federal courts. So a trial court in a district court opinion appealed to a court of appeals and then appealed to the Supreme Court or through state courts where there is a federal constitutional question that is presented. But through those those last two pathways, the case has to have reached a point of finality, which in the federal system usually means that a court of appeals has decided the case and has declined to hear the case on banc. And so now it is final with uh, in the circuit court of appeals or in the state system. Normally, it means that it's gone through the state Supreme Court. But like the United States Supreme Court, most state Supreme Courts are courts that control their own caseload. And so they're cert courts. And in this case, the California Supreme Court just wasn't interested in the issue. And so they didn't, they declined to hear the case, which means that the intermediate appellate decision by the California Court of Appeals was the final decision by the California courts and therefore was ripe for petition to the Supreme Court, which took the case. Interesting. Now, this could have some pretty widespread uh, precedent value. So interesting that the California Supreme Court uh, decided not to hear it. But let's let's transfer over to this hot pursuit doctrine. And so, Professor, some of our audience, they, you know, they don't have a law degree. They're not currently in law school. So I'm wondering if we can get a layman's explanation as to the hot pursuit doctrine. And this is when an officer does not need specifically a warrant to enter someone's home and uh, make an arrest. So walk us through what's required in this uh, hot pursuit doctrine. So there are two key pieces uh, that are preliminary to understanding the question that's presented in this case. And one is, when does the Fourth Amendment apply at all? So the Fourth Amendment guarantees the security against the people in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures. And so the first question that has to be answered before we ever get to any question about the application of the warrant requirement is whether there was, in fact, a search. And that a search in this case can be defined as a physical intrusion into a constitutionally protected area for the purpose of gathering information. In this case, Officer Weikert entered into uh, Mr. Lang's garage for the purpose of gathering more information on Mr. Lang's state. And so that constitutes a search for purposes of the Fourth Amendment. In general, when, and this is under Supreme Court doctrine, whenever a law enforcement officer affects a search of a home, they need to get a warrant. And only in exceptional circumstances can an officer enter a home in order to gather information about a potential criminal violation without a warrant. And one of those exceptions is the exigency requirement. And so the court in applying that warrant requirement has engaged in a balancing of interests approach that it thinks is internal to that idea of unreasonable searches and seizures. And so the court thinks it's unreasonable given uh, the balance of competing interests for law enforcement officers to go into a home to conduct a search without a warrant in most circumstances. But there are some cases where it would be unreasonable to require a warrant because taking the time to get the warrant might, for example, allow 
somebody to arm themselves and pose a danger to law enforcement officers to escape or to access and destroy evidence. And wherever any one of those three concerns is present on the facts of a particular case, the court has allowed officers to enter into the home without a warrant in order to to secure, to protect officer safety, to prevent the escape of a felon, or to secure evidence that might otherwise be destroyed. And there is perhaps related to that exigency exception to the warrant requirement, or perhaps separate, a doctrine that traces back to a case called Warden v. Hayden, where the court indicated that if officers were in hot pursuit of an individual for whom they had probable cause to arrest, and that person was fleeing the officers and ran into a home, that that hot pursuit might provide grounds for the officers to enter into the home without a warrant in order to affect that arrest. And one of the questions that was brought up, that's brought up in this case, is whether that hot pursuit doctrine is a subspecies of the exigency exception, and therefore would require a fact-based analysis of whether one or more of those three interests was threatened on the facts of a particular case, or alternatively, whether there is a bright line rule based on hot pursuit that anytime officers are in hot pursuit, they can enter into a home in order to affect an arrest. And then within that bright line rule, whether it would only apply to felonies, would only apply to dangerous crimes, or would apply to all crimes, regardless of whether they were felonies or misdemeanors. And so the court really has a lot to ponder here in terms of its treatment of circumstances that involve hot pursuit, whether hot pursuit is its own special case, whether it's a special case of exigency that has its own rules, or whether it's just exigency as the court pointed, as uh, one justice in the oral argument pointed out, it's exigency all the way down. And so the officers have to point to facts in any particular circumstance to justify entering into a home to effect an arrest, noting that on the facts of this particular case, they were concerned that about their safety, about the potential destruction of evidence, um, or about potential escape of somebody for whom they had probable cause to arrest. Okay, now I want to get into some of that analysis pertaining to the questions that the court will need to consider and how that might impact their decision. But I want to just kind of uh, back up just a little bit. So in your example here, if you have exigent circumstances, you're in the course of a lawful arrest and the suspect flees into their home. And let, let's change the uh, the facts just a little bit in this case, Arthur uh, Arthur Lang's uh, situation here. So let's say the police officer clearly sees him sort of weaving around, walking up the driveway, clearly appears to be drunk. And so the police officer, you know, has got the lights on, gets out of the car, decides he's going to make this arrest at the property. But, you know, the uh, the, the suspect, uh, Arthur, does not uh, comply, does not hear the officer and just kind of falls forward, crashes through the door. You know, now he's in his own home. And so the officer walks up to go arrest him. In the course of doing that, discovers that Arthur is one of the biggest drug dealers in Sonoma. So he's going to be in trouble for that too. So basically, and I wanted to paraphrase this a little bit, anything that officer discovers in the course of lawfully getting into the home, you know, through the exigent circumstances exception, any of that is admissible into court, uh, perhaps for a different charge. So in that case, with these sort of modified facts, Arthur would be, you know, arrested for a DUI, but also uh, for charges related to, you know, drug selling or, you know, illegal substances, things like that. Correct? 
And so, the, uh, as you rightly point out, there is one of the things, the questions that is at stake in this case is whether law enforcement officers have a lawful right to be in the home. And as you point out, under the plain view doctrine, if officers are in a place where they lawfully have a right to be, then there's no additional Fourth Amendment violation if they observe evidence of criminality. What's at stake here is not only an intrusion into the home, but as you rightly point out, what officers might see once they are in the home. So we don't even really need to stretch the facts that much. We could just imagine that Officer Weikert entered into the garage, um, and once he was in the garage, in addition to smelling alcohol, he smelled the uh, marijuana and therefore had probable cause to believe that there was marijuana. And he looked around and said, lo, there's a whole, there are five bales of marijuana stacked up here in the garage. Under the Plain View Doctrine, um, his smelling and seeing that marijuana would not constitute an additional Fourth Amendment intrusion if he was lawfully in the garage in the first place. And so that is a additional issue that is very much at stake in the court's determination as to whether Weikert was lawfully in a place where he had a right to be on the facts in this circumstance. I want to get through the court's possible analysis in this case. And so Arthur Lang, he uh, his side of this uh, his side of this case, his his attorneys, you know, seem to be making this uh, this distinction between misdemeanors and felonies. Now, so according to my quick research, I looked up uh, felonies in terms of DUI. And so uh, a DUI in the state of California is not by itself a felony if, if you're getting busted for it for the first time. But if someone gets hurt in an accident, it can be if it's your your, your multiple offense, uh, there are are situations where that can become a felony. Now, I don't think the officer under the facts case, I understand, had enough time to determine that one way or the other in relation to Arthur. So arguably, you know, it could have been a felony, could have been a misdemeanor, but Arthur's side of this is really wanting to make this distinction. So what are they trying to do here and what is the court going to need to focus on to make a decision? Mr. Lang was represented by the Stanford Supreme Court Appellate Clinic, and uh, Jeffrey, Professor F Jeffrey Fisher argued the case on his behalf. And he is arguing against any kind of bright line rule. And so in his view, the court should eschew any kind of bright line rule and instead maintain its posture that was colorfully described by Justice Scalia as trudging through the morass of facts in every Fourth Amendment case to try to determine whether on the facts of any particular case, exigency existed and the nature of that exigency justified a warrantless entry. And on the facts of this case, the, uh, the only thing that Mr. Lang was suspected of was evading law enforcement. So the only crime of arrest that Officer Weikert could cite at the moment he entered in the garage was that Mr. Lang had failed to stop and pull over when Officer Weikert turned on his lights and followed behind him. And he didn't at that point have any grounds to think that, uh, that Mr. Lang was driving under the influence. And so uh, Mr. Lang argues that that's certainly not enough to justify a warrantless entry. The nature of that crime and what was at stake in allowing Mr. Lang to walk into his house and asking Officer Weikert to go to the front door and knock on the front door rather than barge into the garage, that there was nothing at stake that would raise a, a question of exigency. On the other side, arguing by appointment by the court, 
Attorney Rice, who was arguing for the California Court of Appeals opinion, which was not defended, interestingly enough, by the California Solicitor General. And in her view, there should be a bright line rule that any time law enforcement officers have reason to believe that somebody has committed a crime, have probable cause to justify an arrest, then they always have the right to follow somebody who tries to evade law enforcement capture by going into their house. So they always have a right to enter a house if they have probable cause to believe that somebody has committed a crime and they're evading law enforcement officers. So those are the sort of the two bookends. Should we have an entirely fact-bound approach or should we have an entirely bright line approach of any time there's probable cause to arrest, no matter the nature of the offense, officers can cite hot pursuit, can cite hot pursuit exigency as grounds to enter into a house. And then the intermediate positions deal with, for example, should we distinguish between felonies and misdemeanors? So there's a bright line rule for felonies, but misdemeanors require a fact-bound analysis based on the circumstances to determine whether exigency exists, or instead of looking at the rather arbitrary designation as of some crimes as felonies, some crimes of misdemeanors, which varies between jurisdictions and may cause administrability problems for officers, we instead look at the nature of the offense so that dangerous felonies would provide grounds for hot pursuit as an exigency justification, but non-dangerous crimes would require reverting to that fact-bound analysis based on the factors that are relevant to a determination of exigency. And then there was an intermediate approach that was proposed to the court that there should be a bright line rule for felonies and a presumption in cases of misdemeanors that could be rebutted based on the facts of a particular circumstance. And all of that reflects the really difficult challenge that the court has in trying to decide whether it's going to stick with a fact-bound analysis or it's going to impose some kind of bright line rule. Anytime the court gets into the question of imposing a bright line rule, it not only has to figure out where it's gonna draw that rule, but it has to find some constitutional foundation for that rule. And Justice Barrett, among others on the court, was really concerned about the fact that there's no constitutionally valid justification for distinguishing between misdemeanors and felonies as a constitutional matter and treating the two differently from a constitutional point of view. And so that's a sort of range of options that the court, the court seemed to be presented with. And the courts in its questioning seem to be very concerned about both the constitutional question and also administrability questions in trying to provide clear guidance to law enforcement officers and a predictable universe for citizens so that they know what kind of conduct might compromise their privacy interests in their homes and what kind of conduct would preserve their privacy interests in their homes. All right. So in this balancing act, and I'm going to ask you to put on your uh, on your uh, predictions hat. So in this balancing act between, you know, the Fourth Amendment, our Bill of Rights here, you know, civil liberties and the ability for police officers to do their job. OK, what's your prediction? How is the Supreme Court going to decide? And when do you think they'll finally make their decision? All right. So I, I think this one will go to the end of June. And I say that because I am the co-editor of a criminal procedure textbook and therefore 
my timeline um, depends on them. And habitually, the Supreme Court seems to compromise my interests and wait until the very last minute to decide these important cases. And so I think it'll probably go to June. And I am going to predict that Justice Alito is going to write the majority opinion for the court. And it's going to follow on a series of opinions that Justice Alito has written dealing with drunk driving cases in a slightly separate context, dealing with the administration of blood alcohol tests in a case called Birchfield versus North Dakota in 2016 and Mitchell versus Wisconsin in 2019. And he's going to say that the exigency exception is fact bound, but almost every time a suspect is fleeing from a felony offense, that that exigency is going to exist. Well, Professor, I think I agree with your prediction. So, well, anyway, thank you so much for joining us today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. And thank you listeners for tuning in. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. And one more thank you to our sponsor, the fine folks at Noda. You can find them at trustnoda.com forward slash legal. That's Noda spelled N-O-T-A. And lastly, but not leastly, thank you to our team, producer Molly McDonough and our LT and audio crew for their continued dedication. Thank you all. You're the best. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Have a great day, everybody. (laughs) 